This is the story of Welcome to America, produced by the Prince Estate and distributed by Sony Music Entertainment. Welcome back to the official Prince podcast. I'm Andrea Swenson. I'm a music journalist in Minneapolis. And in this series, we're exploring the period around when Prince recorded and then shelved his 2010 studio album, Welcome to America. It's just been released from his vault. So far, we've heard some great stories about the recording process and also some of the deep conversations Prince was having in 2010 about politics and social change. In this episode, we're going to try to narrow in on this question of why Welcome to America wasn't released, especially given how excited Prince seemed about the album itself and the messages it contained. And I'm putting an emphasis on try here because none of us really know why Prince did what he did. He didn't have to explain himself to anyone. And he was often moving so quickly that there wasn't really time to ask why he was doing anything. Everyone around him was mainly focused on the who and the how and the when. And the when was usually right now. But we're going to try. In this episode, we're going to start by chatting with one of the final people to work on Welcome to America. And I'm joined once again for this interview by my special co-host, Shelby J. This is Shelby J., singer, songwriter, love and light spreader, good coffee maker, gardener, crocheter, extraordinaire. <laughs> and of course, I was a, a, a member of Prince's band, The New Power Generation, for about 10 glorious years. Hey, Shelby, I'm so happy to have you back. So one of the final people to work on Welcome to America came on board around August 2010. My name is Jason Agle. I'm an engineer and producer, and I spent a number of months between 2010 and 2011 taking last-minute trips to Minneapolis to go work with Prince at Paisley Park. How did you feel when you got that call to come out to Minneapolis to Paisley? I got a call that was kind of cryptic, like, we have someone in Minneapolis who we can't tell you who it is, and we want you to go. He, he needs someone who's like a young, a younger engineer, and I was like, all right, it's Prince, right? Tell me it's Prince. I remember getting a phone call from someone who would call me and then say, all right, Prince is going to call you in a couple minutes and talk to you, and then that never happened. And then after a couple of days of me waiting on street corners nervously for Prince to call me, some someone finally just called me and was like, all right, you're going to go out there and interview with him in person. I was like, okay, all right. And then so I got out there for an interview and ended up like staying there for like something like 23 or 24 days. Were you at our, our classic Country Inn and Suites? Yeah, I had a couple tours over there. <laughs> got to know the staff at the Applebee's and everything. Everything. Yes, it, it becomes your community. So you go to Paisley. Yeah. And then finally, like Prince comes in at like 11 o'clock at night or something. And, you know, there's no interview. He was just like super sweet, said hello. And uh, gave me orders on what to do. And then like at 2 a.m., he came in to check on me. And I was like, he was like, oh, it sounds great. And I was like, oh, geez, thank God. Thank God, right? <laughs> Jason's first project was mixing the song Rich Friends for Prince, which was intended for a deluxe edition of the album 2010 that never materialized. Once Prince saw what Jason was capable of, he put him to work mixing the tracks for Welcome to America. The next day, I got the call from Prince in the hotel. He's like, someone will come pick you up. And then, like, he pulls up in his little Cadillac with this symbol. And, like, he had a, a mirrored jacket and, like, funk music was blasting. And I was like, this is not really what's happening. 
know. It's not. It's like it's, it's like a movie. It's like, is this really happening? <laughs> this is like if someone wrote like, let's write this character of what an experience working with Prince would be like, and then that's what happens. He drove me around and like was like the Minnesota tour, tour guide, tourism yeah. bureau. Like, yeah, exactly. Like he's like caribou coffee over there. Yeah. We got Byer, we got Byerly's over yeah. here. We're going down, you know, we go to the arboretum down the street. Exactly. That's where we hang sometimes, yeah. you know. The, the, the leaves are beautiful in the fall. When you come back in the fall, yeah. it'll be beautiful. I was like, oh, yeah. all right. Hope I hope I come we're coming back. Yeah. seems like there's like this burst of recording activity in April and May. And that's when a lot of the initial tracking for Welcome to America happened. And then Jason, you come in around August and then it seems like there's this kind of renewed excitement around the album and things are starting to be mixed and sequenced. Did Prince present this collection of songs to you as an album? Yeah. So what would happen was we would pull these songs that were already there, these Welcome to America tracks, which were mostly already put together. And in most cases, I would set something up so he could like play a guitar solo on something or set up the mic and I would leave the room so like Shelby and the rest of the girls could do their vocals and everything like that. And then I would come back and I would dump it all uh, into Pro Tools off the tape and I would I would run off like the rough mixes for it. He didn't want me to do too much. So like everything we did, we worked very quickly. Like I thought I was putting together you know, just like rough mixes, reference mixes, right? And so what would happen was every once in a while, he would have me do that for a bunch of the songs. So it definitely was presented as a group of songs in a certain order because we would go through them and I would print them to the CD player in the back of the room. There was one time I didn't work for a day, which drove me nuts because I was sitting in that parking lot in Chanhassen off the side of the highway with nothing to do. And like, and I come in the next day and like, there's like a bunch of like mics knocked over in the live room and stuff. He's like, tells me to dump something off the tape. And it's like just a whole song that he recorded like freshly, probably by himself. I remember coming in being like, you recorded all this stuff from over here in the hotel. Yeah. I don't get to actually come in and record you like playing all these instruments. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like, that's why I'm here, man. But uh, yeah. Yeah, so. and he would do that sometimes, just like want to be in the room by himself to do whatever, to jump from instrument to instrument, record himself. Even though you're there or somebody else is there, I'm there, yeah. I could sing something. It's just like that was the energy he was feeling. It's like colors, paint. That's how I, I look at it. It's like some days he, he would have red, blue, green, yellow, be me, Elisa, Liv, more. And then some days be like, you know what? This is blue. And it's blue. And that's it. And the other colors, y'all stay over here in the crown box, over here in the country and the suites. Now don't go too far. <laughs> Cause I might, cause I might, I might need you. So be, you know, stay ready. But that is a true, you know, for real creative genius. Like that he was really, he would really go with the flow like that. And you had to be willing to go with the flow and kind of ha- be okay with not knowing. Yeah, that's definitely true. He was ultimately just doing everything himself and then pulling in the different ingredients as he needed it. He had these songs that he was making 
And he didn't tell anyone else what he was thinking about them or like what was going to happen, but he would just collect the best from everybody on his laptop, which was one of the nicest studios I've ever been in. And then he would just have me there to help him sort through it really quickly so that we could hear everything. So some of those tunes are definitely probably just him. He could do everything he wanted by himself, like Rin Tin Tin or whatever. heard the stuff for the first time like what song hit you like oh man i remember this i remember mixing this one like yes that's <laughs> that's my song what <laughs> was obviously like the that first the first single just the song welcome to america there was just one day where he was like all right set up the microphone and i was like oh no i get i'm gonna record him actually singing today and he came in and so i thought like he's sitting on the couch like next to me i'm at the computer and I hit record, and then he just lets his voiceover out. So he doesn't sing. He just starts, like, narrating yeah. the song, right? And so, like, that was very unexpected. And I just remember That's just, so like, dope. <laughs> hearing it, like, you know, like, with his head, his voice in my ears, and he's yeah, right there. Right. And then I'm like, oh, my God. Is like, this okay. happening right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Welcome to America, where you can fail at your job get fired, rehired, and get a $700 billion tip. I didn't know we were, like, necessarily mixing an album. Right. Just like we didn't know we were, like, making an album. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like we just sing it. CD for him to listen to <laughs> at, at night, as far as I knew. And then there were a few times where I would run off mixes and he would say something like, all right, well, this has got to be right because this is going out to the plant tomorrow to get distributed and manufactured and all that stuff. And then it wouldn't happen. He'd say the same thing like a week later after like adding vocals on something else. Every time they were like printing out some new music, I was like, oh, finally. And then it was never it anything was, I worked It was on. never that, right? But guess, <laughs> yeah. but guess what? That day is coming. That day is it's, coming. Yeah, exactly. For the majority of his career, Prince was in a constant flow of writing and recording new songs and releasing them, averaging about an album a year released to the public and countless others archived in his vault. But around the time he worked on Welcome to America, his output shifted. After doing a very limited release of his album 2010 in Europe, Prince wouldn't release another commercial album until 2014, when he simultaneously released his solo album, Artificial Age, and his Third Eye Girl collaboration, Plectrum Electrum. This break from recording is something Prince actually touched on when he visited the George Lopez show in 2011. Yeah, I'm in recording rehab now. I, I just do it. <laughs> I'm writing too much, so I'm taking a break. The industry's going through a lot of changes. I'm just let that... It, it, it has gone through, through a lot of changes. Do you think the, the, the internet, uh, do you think that's helped? Help music? Um, it's helped the people who sell the music. You know, for an artist, you know, they don't make the money they used to. And I, I think we tend not to value things we can get for free. We wanted to know more about Prince's thoughts on emerging technologies and the music industry's shift to streaming in 2010. 
themes that Prince reflects on throughout Welcome to America. So Shelby and I called up a friend who knows a lot about tech and a lot about Prince. I'm Anil Dash, and I'm a tech guy who runs a company called Glitch, but my heart has been in being a fan of Prince's music, and especially his use of technology for decades. I was thinking about how in 2010, the year that Welcome to America was recorded, Prince was given two Lifetime Achievement Awards, one from BET and one from the Webbies. And it's just two such interesting points in his career yeah. um, that happened within a few months of each other. And Shelby, I know you were at the BET Awards. Wow. Well, I can tell you that I had seen the advertisement that they were honoring him before we even discussed it. He didn't even bring it up. We were in rehearsal and he just, he called me over real, you know, he would do, he would do the biggest things real smooth. Like, and he goes, I'm going out to LA uh, for a couple of days. I want you to come with me, bring a couple of dresses and uh, we're going to have some fun. It, it was just so nice. We were at the Beverly Hills Hotel and it was so beautiful. I'd never stayed there before, but he was just so relaxed. We were in his room. He was playing piano. There was a piano in his room and he was just in a good space. And I, you know, I pinched myself because it was so like a dream because four days before that, I had no idea this is where I was going to be with him. I still didn't know I was going to be with him sitting beside him at the awards. I didn't know that until that actually transpired. <laughs> so when people see my face on TV, they're like, you look surprised. I was like, I was. Because <laughs> I was on Front Street. And he's like, yeah, you're going to be sitting next to me and the camera's going to be on us. So, you know, just know that everything you do will be seen. And we cut up. We cut up like two kids at the movies where nobody was watching. It's the playful side of him, the, the childlike side of him. People could see that. That meant a lot to him. And he told me it did. Um, because, you know, giving people their flowers while they can smell them is so important. It's great to do all this stuff. Somebody's gone and everybody's waving flags. It's like, no, give people their flowers when they can smell them and show them that you appreciate them and love them for the contributions that they've made while they're here. So they can say thank you back. <laughs> and he actually got to sit there and be honored by them. And he really appreciated that. Like his whole heart and his his soul, you could see how much that meant to him. His speech was super special, what he said on the stage that night, and he meant it. So yeah, it was a real special time. I think 2010 is such a special moment in Prince's career because, and Shelby had alluded to this too, it's sort of a moment of Prince getting his flowers, which was great to see as fans and people just rooting for him. And I think those prior few years, the building from whether it was opening the Grammys, having the Musicology Tour, doing the Super Bowl, there'd been this sort of, I think, elevation to an elder statesman that had been, frankly, long overdue. And so now all of a sudden people could see him as the titan that he was, this just force of nature. And I think that was really wonderful. And there's this moment in 2010 that is sort of fascinating, too, because it is institutional recognition. I mean, that is what the Webbies and, and, and to some degree the BET Awards are, too, is these organizations finally saying, OK, it's time that we recognize what this person has done for us as communities, as institutions, as you know, things. And also, you know, people talk about an EGOT and it's like that would be nothing for him. But nobody has the back to back Webby and BET awards. Only one man is playing in both these lanes at the top of the game. 
And, and I think that's so extraordinary. And me being a little bit of a geek, like we saw the Webbies. He had won a Webby for the MPG Music Club years before and had already sort of been at least contextualized. It's like, this is a technology pioneer, not just a music innovator. But the lifetime achievement, I think, was really, really instructive because it, it was coming off of a lot of work on Lotus Flower and things like that. And they were miles ahead. People forget this is before really YouTube has taken off as the dominant force that it is. This is when still nascent days of you know, even iTunes getting you know, sort of the streaming world. There's no Spotify in America at this point. And, and so far ahead of the game that the Webby Awards are saying, like, this is who you look to to see where technology is going. I think that's really instructive. And then, you know, the BET Awards, I thought, it checked so many boxes of things that people had kind of almost forgotten about Prince. I think first and foremost, he was always so just upfront and straightforward of like, it means a lot to him as a black man to be recognized as a black artist by the black community. By his people. Exactly. Yes. And in that <laughs> moment to also say, and I want to see black women on stage, which he always did. And so it's mm -hmm. no coincidence, everybody honoring him are black women. And also just being real, like as a fan, like there were so many, like the gifts and the memes of that night. Because it's Patty kicking off her shoes and Prince pick. Who else? <laughs> Prince is not picking up anybody's shoes in the world but Patty LaBelle, period. Right. You know what I mean? That was the best. Prince's whole career is full of all of these twists and turns and seeming contradictions at times. And there's something that feels very classically Prince to me about him accepting the Webby Lifetime Achievement Award. And the next headline from him <laughs> is him telling the Daily Mirror, that the internet is completely over. <laughs> I mean, what did you both make of this statement? <laughs> that was, I, I tell you, as the, like, the the tech guy who loves Prince, like, everybody in the world sent me this, like, what is, what is your man saying right here? And I said, first of all, let's be clear. This is the man who said he was going to stop recording because he's going to go looking for the ladder. This is the man who spent years shouting at us that Prince was dead. Like, he said a lot of things. And it made sense in his context, and we got to understand that he's a man that evolved over time. But I think the most clear thing to understand about Prince saying the internet is over, he actually talked to The Guardian a few years later, I think in 2015, and he said, look, I was talking about the ability of an artist to make money in the world in this sort of new internet environment. And he closed that statement and said, but Apple's doing pretty well, aren't they? I mean, he was very clear about tying this to the history of artists being exploited, especially Black artists. And, and I think... He was absolutely right. Streaming was a fundamental change in the economics, and he knew that you know as deeply as anybody in the world did. And he called it really at the peak of the moment when somebody could make money as an artist online, and also when you could develop as an artist online. I mean, people forget now, but this is a moment when MySpace is still around. People are being discovered through that platform. It's designed to sort of you know, help you find a new star in the way you might with you going to the clubs or whatever to listen to new artists, and then died. It fell off a cliff right away at that moment. So I think he accurately called the top of the market in terms of when was there going to be a way for you to be an artist who would get discovered and thrive and be able to support yourself through these online media without just being promoted by the platform. Because since that point, it has become, if you are smiled upon or blessed by really a few players, and you know these days it's YouTube or Spotify or you know iTunes or what have you, then you can probably still get by. But everybody else is hoping to build that fan base and work their way up. I think he was dead on about, can a musician succeed in this internet world? And he said, no, not anymore, not in the way we used to. Shelby, yeah. does that square with conversations you were having with him at this time? Yeah, because there was so much changing as far as artists trying to use technology to 
connect with their fans. He would talk about movies. He's like, I can't go take a Star Wars <laughs> thing and just decide. He goes, that intellectual property, that's protected. You can't just go and do whatever you want. It'll be all over you with that. But somewhere along the way, the same respect is not given to music and it being something that is yours. It is a something you created. He would always refer to you know, movies and Star Wars. He's like, you can't just go and take, <laughs> you know, George Lucas, that'll be all of it. And we, and we knew them. We played their wedding. I mean, you know, we knew them personally. Hello. But he was right about that. They owned that. He was so far ahead of a casual fan or casual music fan's understanding of the internet as a business that sometimes they couldn't follow why he was saying what he was saying until years later. Like he saw what streaming was going to do before most people in America had even heard of streaming music. So he could see that economics. I think one of the things he talked about a lot as he used some of the other services like Tidal later in his career was like, what other artists are they recommending around me? He's like, I want it to be next to Sly Stone. I want it to be next to James Brown. I want it to be next to Aretha. I don't want them just recommending whatever artist the label says to promote next to me. And now we know that all the time. Everybody's aware of, oh, if I go on social media, the algorithm is going to suggest something to me that might be false. It might be a lie, let alone, you know, just a bad artist. This might be something that's actually harmful in the world. And he saw that coming. And that was so clear. And I think that's something that really gets underestimated. People see him, you know, with his backside out in the pants and, and dancing around and all things he did in his career. And there's all these like stunts. And they don't realize this is a man that understood at a deep, profound level the business forces and the economic forces. In an interview, he would talk about his faith and he would talk about what he was playing on his guitar. And then they wouldn't expect like, and here's this, you know, MBA class on music business on the side in the middle of it. We asked that no one use camera phones, and they honored that request. This is Prince speaking to a room full of media in Paris in the fall of 2009. Unlike Americans who are so obsessed with technology, and we don't like to have our concerts filmed that way because it sounds so bad, and then you give all the footage to somebody like YouTube, who is run by Universal Publishing, and some of those same lawyers. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. They just see the logos, but we know all the behind-the-scenes guys. And it, it seems they also want to control who becomes popular and who doesn't. The radio is state-controlled and, uh, you know, YouTube and how many hits you get and all that kind of stuff, or, or how many views you get, rather. And it's just a um, system now that is just not enticing to me. So we stick with concerts and uh, we can do new music that way. I heard this on the tech side coming from people that had one of the big platforms. And, you know, they had reached out because at that time, Prince's music wasn't on any of the streaming services. He'd, he'd pulled it off and they were like, look, you got to be here. This is where the, the fans are going to be and the future is going to be. And, and I think it was a really astute thing. They said what they heard back was the truth, which is you want me to put my work on your platform. You choose the price. You choose how much I get. You choose who it gets distributed to. And you can change it at any time unilaterally. And all I can say is, okay, that doesn't sound like a good deal. And he was right. Son of a slave master, still running game. Still running game. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, it's just different. How much do you want?
and that's the reason there's a song about it. <laughs> it's because he, he knew it well enough that he can write the song. That's that's such a obvious thing now. But to think about 10 years ago, to just sort of rattle off the top of his head, like he knew that, like the back of his hand, he knew that's where that was going. He was very aware of the powers that be that, like you said, with the algorithms and everything else, it's like technology's great, but not when it starts to think for you. Yeah, we're not that far from which phone you buy decides what music you like. How mm-hmm. about that? <laughs> and that's and that's the kind of thing where you could just see him waving everybody off and saying, like, look, you you gotta you gotta question this, you gotta interrogate this. And I think that's a blessing is that he taught all of us as fans and, and supporters so well for so many years that just the scales fall from your eyes. You can see those systems. You can see the things he was sort of speaking to. Yeah, he'd all, he's like, Shelby, think for yourself. Like, think for yourself. And I, I'm like, even with him, like, I would listen to him, but it's like, don't think like I think. Listen to what I say, but think for yourself. You know, make your own, don't allow your brain <laughs> to be brainwashed to where you're just a cog in the machine. So one of the big questions that I'm trying to answer and we'll probably never get a definitive answer to is why Prince didn't release Welcome to America. And I wonder if his skepticism about what was happening in the music industry had any influence on him, you know, wanting to even deal with putting out records. With Welcome to America, I've been asked this, why didn't Prince put this record out? And the answer is uh, he didn't want to. And I know that sounds real simple and I'm not being flipped, but the the more you would notice, brother, the more you would understand, like Prince did what Prince wanted to do. And you didn't even have to understand it. It might not make sense to you then. Of course, we, we recorded all this music. We've got a tour coming up. He's going to put the record out and we're going to sing these songs on this tour. That's not what he felt. He's a vessel. I can only imagine what was coming through him and speaking through him at that time. I know he discussed some stuff with Morris about it. Like basically saying like, you know, when it's time, it'll be time. And he stepped away from it. That was it. Like when it's time, it's time. It ain't time yet. And that's it. Me personally, because I don't like to speak for him. I never will. But I personally believe that he knew that at that time, it was not the right time for several different reasons. I don't think it would have been received the same way. I don't think it would have been absorbed the same way. I don't think we had been through the things that we needed to go through in the last 11 years. And all of that needed to happen so that when this did come out, it would hit a certain way. And I think the timing of this is like perfect. He set it up like, come on, man. You never want to speculate. And I think I think a lot of people are like, oh, I know what Prince would do. Like, Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But one thing I think he was very consistent about is things happen in the right time and things happen the way they should. And he trusted his muse and trusted his spirit to get him to the right place at the right time. And so I, I think it is such a Prince-like answer. It's like, well... It wasn't right time until now, you know, and, and also we do know like there were times he held on to songs for five years, 10 years, 20 years until it was time because he could be that far ahead of the world. And I think I think that's something, too, where um, it, it is a moment of like, is the world ready to hear this? I, I mean, I also think at a practical level, that was such an incredible tour. Welcome to America tour was absolutely unbelievable. Thank you. That's so much just to absorb. And so I'm like, that's enough. That was enough for Welcome to America to be in that moment. But also the hint that we knew as fans, yeah, yeah, there's a record behind this. 
You can't have it yet. Yeah. So I think there's been a little bit of like that dramatic uh, buildup we get to enjoy. But the other part I, I hear in the lyrics in these songs is like, just uh, even the opening track. Distracted by the features of the iPhone. In other words, taken by a pretty face. Somebody's watching you. Welcome to America. Hook up later at the iPad. Or we can meet at my place. To America. Where everything and nothing that Google says is hip. He's calling out by name these companies, technology companies, whatever. And we never heard him do that. Most of Prince's songs, he's living in, in his world, in his music, in Paisley Park, you know, like in his environment. Mm -hmm. But to speak on it by name about things out in the world it is almost shocking. It is a dramatic difference from anything he'd written before. It has so much more impact now because now these are things we're all talking about every day. These are all things that we're paying attention to. And so I think it, 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 is, it is right on time. Welcome to America. One of our greatest exports was a thing called jazz. Coming up next on The Story of Welcome to America, Morris Hayes will be back to help me co-host our final episode, focusing on the Welcome to America tour and Prince's epic 21-night stand in Los Angeles, which included over a dozen shows at the Forum. We'll listen to live audio from one of those Forum shows and hear from Prince's band about those unforgettable star-studded nights in the spring of 2011. of Welcome to America is produced by The Prince Estate and distributed by Sony Music Entertainment. This story was written and co-produced by me, Andrea Swenson. Rosie DuPont is our producer and Corey Shreffel is our technical director. Thanks also to Trevor Guy, Zach Hockapole, Michael Howe, and Dwayne Tudal. Order your copy of Welcome to America at Prince.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, search for the story of Welcome to America on Apple Podcasts Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.